NBA on NBC. What is up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not they should get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're talking about former MLB slugger Dick Allen, and whether or not he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And joining us in just a moment to discuss Dick's career and Hall of Fame candidacy is the host of the Daily Chicago White Sox podcast, Locked on White Sox, Nick Murawski. Before we bring Nick on, let's talk a little more about Dick Allen. So Dick Allen's career ranged from 1963 to 1977. And while he was in the league, he was one of the premier sluggers. He played a number of years for the Phillies. He had a cup of coffee with both the Cardinals and the Dodgers and the Athletics. And he had a, I would say his peak seasons or some of his peak seasons for the Chicago White Sox, who he played from from 1972 to 1974. So a short stint there, but a memorable one. And that was it. His career was just 15 seasons. And really, he had a 10, 11-year stretch where he was one of the best sluggers. And then just as quickly as he came in and won Rookie of the Year, he was out of the league at 35. But over his time in the league, he really made an impact. He was a 292 career batter. He had a 378 career on-base percentage and a 534 career slugging percentage, which is good for 45th all-time. He also had a 912 OPS, which is good for 60th all-time. And he slugged 351 home runs and had 1,119 RBIs. And when it comes to OPS plus, 156, which is good for 24th all time. I do want to read some names that come after him on this career OPS plus list. So we have Dick Allen at 156. Also at 156, we have Frank Thomas. They're tied for 24th all time. Right after them. After them is the key word. Henry Aaron, Joe DiMaggio, Willie Mays, Mel Ott all have an OPS plus of 155. Aaron, DiMaggio, Mays, Ott. And then after them at 154, it's just, oh, Manny Ramirez and Frank Robinson. So yes, Dick Allen is in very good company here. And also for you war fans out there, 58.7 career war, which for the 15 or so seasons he played, that's pretty good. But again, everyone that knows war, you all have your own standards, but 58.7 was his career war. Dick Allen won an MVP trophy in the AL in 1972 with the White Sox when he led the league in basically everything. Uh, On-base percentage, slugging, OPS, OPS+, plus, war, home runs, RBIs, almost everything. He was third in batting average, so honestly, several hits away from winning a triple crown there. Uh, but that was by far his best year, in my opinion, in his MVP season. He was also a seven-time All-Star for the Phillies and the Sox. He led the league in OPS four times, OPS plus three times, on-base percentage twice, and home runs twice. Um, and I guess that wraps it up for his kind of quick facts here. Uh, the one other thing I'd say before we get to it is, you know, the thing with Dick Allen is his career was not that long, but when he played, he was one of the best sluggers in the game. And, and Nick and I will go through, you know, how he compared to the different people playing the 60s and 70s. But I'll tell you right now, he was one of the best hitters at the time. However, you heard the stats, 351 home runs, 1,119 RBIs, 
the counting stats don't really fall in line with the slugging Hall of Famers, right? That's not 500 home run club. That's not, you know, over 1,500 RBIs. That's, you know, he got nowhere near 3,000 hits, didn't even get 2,000 hits. So the counting numbers aren't there. So the big, the big thing here is like, how much do we weight the counting numbers? How much do we weight the peak? And what do we come to at the end? And Nick and I go through that throughout the podcast. Now, Dick Allen is already off the, the regular ballot, right? He retired all the way back in 1977. He was on the ballot for 14 years, never got above 18.9% of the vote. So yeah, never got near that 75% threshold. It's up to the Veterans Committee now. He's come one vote short twice. Back in 2015, he came one vote short of getting in. And back in 2021, again, for the Veterans Committee, there's 16 voters. You need 12 votes. He got 11. So he got 11 votes the last two times, very close, but still not in. Nick and I are going to talk today about whether or not, whether or not we think he should get in and whether or not we think he will get in. So really fun podcast today. I hope you are listening to this the day before the 4th of July, on the 4th of July. I mean, it's baseball, had to do a baseball episode this week, but this is a great show. So I hope you're listening and relaxing on your day off. So with the quick facts out of the way, let's bring on Nick. All right. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, the host of the daily Chicago White Sox podcast, Locked on White Sox, Nick Morowski. Nick, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Jim, thank you so much for having me. Uh, doing great. Uh, White Sox just uh, just won, beat the Angels, split the series. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good. That's good. That's always good when they win. So, Nick, we got a big task on our hands today. And I told you before we started recording here, like this podcast is one I've had, you know, since I started this podcast about three years ago. This has always been one on, on the radar. Had to do it. And we're finally here. And it, again, it's when I'm releasing this, the 4th of July will be the next day. It's baseball time. It's a perfect time to do it. Today, we're talking about Dick Allen, a, a very, I think, controversial topic when it comes to the Hall of Fame. He's someone who's on the outside looking in still. Um, when Dick was on the ballot way back when, never got over 20% of the vote. He maxed out at 18.9%, which you, my listeners, know you got to get to 75%. So he was very off there. However, as he went to the Veterans Committee, he came very, very, very close to getting in two different times where we wouldn't even have to do this episode because he'd already be in. Back in 2015, he came one vote away from the Veterans Committee. There's 16 voters. You need 12 of 16 votes. He got 11 that year. And then just back in 2021, again, needed 12 votes. He got 11. And that was the year that um, Jim Cott got in, Gil Hodges got in, Minnie Minoso got in, Tony Levy got in. That was the year four of them got in. He was the one odd man out, 11 out of 16. And unfortunately, Dick had passed away just the year before, actually the day after it was supposed to be announced. They got pushed back to 2021 with COVID. It just didn't work out. And again, we've seen this with Ron Santo, where he didn't get in until he passed away. Unfortunately, again, this seems to be replaying itself. It's one of the worst things about the Hall of Fame, but that's another day. Anyway, he's been very close by the Veterans Committee but he has not gotten in yet. The next opportunity for Dick Allen to get in will not be this next coming ballot, but it will be December of 2024 to be a part of the class of 2025. So when that's happening, I'll probably throw this up on Twitter again or wherever we're using at that point. 
let everyone know about it, but he cannot get in, you know, for the 2024 class. It would have to be 2025 the next time he has a chance. But the problem too, Nick, there is they reorganized the Veterans Committee where it's now the classic baseball era, which before he was up against the best players from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Now it's anyone that played before 1980. So a hundred years now of baseball crammed into one committee. Very unfair to me, but that's what it is today. So that's what he's up against. And mm-hmm. Nick and I, per usual on the podcast, as you all know, listeners, we're talking about his career, his candidacy. And at the end, we're talking about whether or not we think he should be in. And if we think he will get in, Nick, I start my podcast off all the time with this question. It's easy. We start with a layup. It's just when you think of Dick Allen, what's the first thing that's come to your mind? You know, so Dick Allen's playing days were definitely before my time, but as a lifelong diehard Sox fan, multi-generational Sox fan, uh, you can't grow up without hearing about guys like Minnie Minoso and, of course, Dick Allen. And the thing that really struck me immediately was seeing the image of the Sports Illustrated cover, the 1972 classic cover, June of 72. He's juggling baseballs with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth in the dugout. And, you know, that is all over the stadium. There's images uh, at Sox Park. And, of course, wearing that red helmet, that signature batting helmet, uh, while he was also out in the field. And there's, of course, some uh, unfortunate backstory to why he was wearing uh, a helmet and and that that struck me for sure. The long sleeves, you know, always wearing those long sleeves, even on some hot, humid days uh, on the south side of Chicago uh, in the power. Uh, he had uh, strength. I mean, so he had some tape measure shots. Uh, his home runs uh, were epic. Uh, and, and, you know, he won an MVP uh, with the Chicago White Sox. And despite having a very long history, we do not have a lot of MVP winners in our history. So again, to put his name up there with Fox and uh, Thomas and uh, of course, Abreu as of a couple of years ago, uh, that's a big deal for Sox fans. Yeah. And, and you know, Dick Allen, I, I think of, when I think of him, I think of him in, in a Sox uniform. And I think one of the main things I think of that SI cover, I think it's one of, I don't know if it's a top five cover of all time, but it's up there. It's, it's in the running. It's, it, it'll get anyone to laugh. It'll get anyone to ask questions. And it kind of showed just, you know, Dick Allen, and we'll probably get to this later, like some people say he had character issues. Some people, you know, didn't like how he was as a teammate, but he was a character. Like he was a colorful character in MLB baseball. And I think that really shows, it kind of brings it all to life in, and you brought up something that I want to get to at some point. So let's just talk about it now. You know, he plays for the White Sox for only three years. Yet again, I said, I think of him as, as a White Sox a lot of time, but the Phillies is really who he should be associated with. But he has the MVP season. He leads the league in home runs twice in the AL on the White Sox. But three years there, but he makes a big imprint. And as you said, only other MVPs in Sox history are Frank Thomas, who won the back-to-back in 93-94, Nelly in 1959 and Jose a few years ago in 2020. And I was looking at those different Hall of Fame campaigns. And, and Nick, as the White Sox expert here, how do you how do you rank Dick Allen's MVP season against those others? Is this is this maybe the second best MVP season compared to maybe Frank's 94 campaign? Is this behind both of Frank's campaigns? 
Does Nelly edge him anywhere? Where would you say Dick Allen's MVP season ranks among the top White Sox seasons of all time? When you look at what he did and, and the numbers he put up and just dominated the league in every major category in 1972, I mean, he had a 308, 420, 603 slash line. I mean, his OPS of 1023 in 1972, uh, you know, didn't get repeated until 1979, until Fred Lynn came came along. Uh, it, it was just a magical year. I mean, in every different category. So yeah, I think you'd have to put him up around the, the Thomas uh, numbers, it, but 94 was the shortened season. It was. And you had Abreu with just a 60 game season. I don't want to take anything away from Jose Abreu. He, he was an impressive player in 2020 uh, as was Frank. I mean, Frank was, and the whole Sox organization in 94, that's a whole nother topic though. Uh, but 93, that, that was an awesome year for Frank Thomas. And so I put Dick Allen right up there. I, I absolutely do because of, you know, how much he dominated the league with his numbers. I mean, it was just an impressive showing uh, home runs, RBIs, walks, you know, slugging and, 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 and OPS plus. I mean, it was uh, an impressive year. And, you know, he won, you know, all-star 90 or 72, 73, 74, had some injuries in 73 and definitely in 74, uh, but, you know, there's a book I'll reference quite a bit, you know, in this recording, Chili Dog MVP by uh, David Owens and John Alexander it came out in the spring of 2022. It's a fascinating book on Dick Allen, what he meant to the Chicago White Sox, not only just that team, that that era, 72 to 74, but the entire franchise, uh, you know, they easily could have been moved out of the city of Chicago, maybe Seattle, maybe Milwaukee. The Sox were floundering, you know, heading into uh, that 1972 team. Uh, they acquired him and he, the, the city embraced Dick Allen. He embraced them. And from what he came from in Philadelphia, where it was tumultuous, it was ugly. Uh, I, I believe, you know, I, I, again, there's a lot going on in this book, but I'm pretty sure he said he would like to go into the hall of fame if it happened uh, in a white Sox cap. Mm, mm. That, and that's, again, that's an important part of, the Hall of Fame press, right? Like, what cap do they wear? And again, is three years enough, but some of his best seasons were there. And he meant so much to the White Sox franchise, which is why when I was looking on who to bring on, I, I wanted to bring a White Sox guy on. I, I, I wasn't looking for a Phillies guy. I was thinking White Sox this whole time, even though his career spanned much longer uh, in Philadelphia. And I just want to go circle back real quick to that MVP season. Uh, you've been talking about, Nick, that 72. So again, the listeners at home, he led the AL that year in home runs, RBIs, walks, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, OPS plus, and war. And he finished third in batting average. So he was just honestly several hits away from being a triple crown winner that year. In the AL, in his first season in the AL, he really took, you know, Chicago by storm and almost got the White Sox to, to the playoffs that year, to, the, to, to, you know, to the postseason that year, almost single-handedly. I... I'll talk about it later, but I, I want to talk about some of the other players on that 72 team. But one more thing I asked you at the beginning, like, you know, White Sox MVP seasons all time. You know, if I take a look at even Frank Thomas's seasons and again, that shorten season, that 94 strike season, I mean, his slash lines off the charts for 113 games he played. He had a 212 OPS plus, but. A lot of people today, I, I I look at it, it's not everything to me. Everyone loves war, right? Everyone 
they either hate war, or they love war, but just by war, those MVP seasons, again, a Brayu season was shortened. So that's not really fair to him. Frank Thomas's 94 was shortened, but Frank Thomas's 93, he had a 6.2 war. Nellie Fox's 1959 MVP, a 6.1 war. Dick Allen, 8.6. So well and above higher than any of the others. Again, I'm never going to argue against a Frank Thomas MVP season because those were both outrageous. But as you said, Nick, Dick Allen right in there with the type of batter Frank Thomas was at his best. And Frank Thomas is one of the purest hitters I've ever seen in my lifetime, but honestly, of all time as well. Yeah, uh, Dick Allen received 21 of 24 votes in 72. And, you know, to a point you made coming from the NL to the AL, uh, looking at different pitchers, a new environment. Uh, and it was really, you know, Tanner, uh, the, the head, the manager of the Chicago White Sox that had a relationship uh, with Dick Allen going all the way back to, you know, his upbringing in Pennsylvania. Uh, where, where Chuck Tanner uh, kind of talked to Dick Allen's mother and to Dick Allen and, and you know, tried to, hey, this is going to be okay. You know, this move to Chicago, we want you. He knew the potential. He knew what they were getting with Dick Allen. Okay, he came with a reputation, uh, but Chuck Tanner knew what kind of player he could be. And I think because of that relationship, uh, Chuck Tanner and Dick Allen, it made Dick Allen so much more comfortable making that transition uh, transition to Chicago, which I don't think he necessarily was too excited about when that deal was made in December of 1971. So uh, I think that helped him, you know, ease into the season. You've got somebody that you're comfortable with that knows you and your background and where you came from. Uh, and that probably played a huge role in him just breaking out, you know, being who he was on the field. Yeah. So. Nick, I do want to move to our next segment here. We call this That Memorable Moment. And we're very liberal on this part. It can be honestly anything you want it to be. It can be a single play, best play, a best game, a best season, a stretch of a season. But it's, if I was like, Dick Allen, tell me his most memorable moment of his career. What is it? What would you say it is? There are, you know, a lot of one, you know, again, I talked about the tape measure shots that he has had, but I'm going to give you June 4th, 1972. And and this is, this is the defining uh, game for the title of the book, Chili Dog MVP. Uh, It was a doubleheader against the New York Yankees, which of course, Yankees and White Sox during that era, uh, they were at each other and and you wanted to beat the Yankees. I mean, you still do now, uh, but in that doubleheader, the Sox, Uh, took the first game, gave Dick Allen uh, the second game off. Chuck Tanner said, you know, just be ready maybe to pinch hit Dick Allen in the clubhouse, not paying too much attention, eating a chili dog. As the game goes on, socks are down by two. Chuck Chuck Tanner sends a, you know, a bat boy or somebody to go get uh, Dick Allen. He's woofing down a chili dog. It's getting on his jersey. They need to find another jersey for him because Chuck Tanner wants him to hit uh, in the ninth. Socks were down 4-2. Uh, he gets himself a new jersey, grabs a bat. And you know, Dick Allen didn't take a lot of batting practice either. It, it, this isn't wasn't like, whoa, well, and he didn't even take any swings or anything. He famously you know, would not really show up for batting practice, comes into the game, 
Uh, and what does he do? He hits a three-run home run, and the White Sox win 5-4, sweeping uh, the Yankees on June 4th in that uh, doubleheader. So, I mean, w- and what a what a story, right, uh, with a guy that has that type of personality already. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, he has a lot of stories quite like that. Um, another one just, I guess, a month later, if that was June 4th, um, one of the things I've always known about him, and I maybe want to talk about a little more here, is just, you know, we, he, he was an ultimate slugger. And, and again, we're talking about some of these tape measure home runs he's hitting. Um, just in a, a great athlete in, in general, not just the power, but speed and athleticism. And, and I go to that same season, July 31st, they're playing the Twins. He hits two inside the park home runs in one game. Um, that was, he was the first person in the modern era, because I think back in like, you know, the 1910s and 20s, that was happening more often. But First person in the modern era to do that. And I, and I think it just shows, again, the kind of athlete he is. Like he's, he's a power hitter, but also at the beginning of the career, he was stealing quite a number of bases. He had 133 in his career. He led the league in triples. Uh, his second year in Philly with 13 ended his career with 79. So, you know, sometimes we, we talk about power hitters and, you know, they're big, burly guys with tons of power, the tape measures. Those guys aren't stealing bases. That combination of size and, and or I'm sorry, power and speed is always going to be appealing to baseball fans. It's always been appealing to me. And I think it's something we don't talk about, you know, Allen that much because again, he doesn't have 300 steals or 400 steals or anything like that. But his triple numbers at his peak were high. He swept 20 bags in 1967. And just overall, he was just a natural athlete who was one of the better, you know, athletes we saw in the, in the sixties and seventies. And I, I think that gets underscored when we're just talking about his power, but two inside the park home runs that doesn't happen by accident. You have to have wheels and you have to be a great base runner. And he had both of those attributes. Yeah. He was a smart baseball player and those ballparks were big too. Huge. So he was, I mean, he was hitting tape measure shots out of some very large ballparks back then Uh, the the power, the speed, and uh, you know, it's just, the legend has grown, uh, but when you go and you 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 read some of the stuff that's been compiled, it's like this. Ha- well, this isn't fabricated. I mean, this stuff actually happened. He did this, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I love that story. Two inside the park home runs. It's great. And again, all part of that 1972 season where he won the MVP. So like that was his year. Which again, if I'm p- pointing to a year to remember Dick Allen by, or someone and be like. Do you, let's see Dick Allen at his peak. That is the perfect. I mean, he won the MVP the year. He definitely deserved the MVP. His numbers were off the charts. And again, he almost won the triple crown that year. I, I had never, honestly, until I looked into his season, I didn't realize his batting average was so high that year. He's a 292 career hitter. That year he batted 308. I think the, the batting title went to someone 321. Um, but third in batting average, first in basically everything else. Um, And again, when he moved to the White Sox, one more thing, Nick, before we move on, you know, over his career, I feel like teams didn't really know where to play him. They played him at third. He, he had trouble there at times. He was a good athlete, but he, he had some high error seasons there. They tried to play him in the outfield at times, first base. When he got to Chicago, they actually just put him at one position for the whole year, each year. And I feel like, and again, I I don't know when I, I told you at the beginning and White Sox fans, I'm sure you're listening. I'm I'm a Cubs guy, but when Madden was here, he would play the players at all different kinds of positions, like a little league team. And some people thought that was cute. I thought it was annoying because I feel like as a baseball player, you like to have the same position, routine, things like that. I feel like Dick Allen might have thrived 
in Chicago for a number of reasons, but one of them, he was actually just at first base so he could learn the position a little better, get comfortable there and not have to worry about that and could focus on his hitting. And again, this could just be me assuming this, but I do think that consistency may have helped him. And the White Sox were really the only organization that really kind of figured that out. Yeah, you know, we're experiencing it right now with the Chicago White Sox, and we did last year with guys playing out of position. I mean, there's something to be said for versatility. I mean, every every manager wants it. The, sure. the Ben Zobris type of guy, right, that you can put him in a bunch of different spots and expect some production, uh, especially, you know, late in the game or, or what have you, depending on what kind of pitchers on the mound. But you know, we got a guy like Andrew Vaughn right now that was uh, out in the corner outfield, but he was a, is a career first baseman out of college. And, you know, of course, Jose Abreu was at first base. And I don't really think Vaughn uh, lived up to the hype, so to speak, over the last few years because he didn't really know where he was going to play. He was trying to learn a new position while also you know, carrying it over with the bat. Now he's at first base. And although a little sluggish with his numbers, I think he's going to be okay. And he's coming around as of late because uh, he knows where he's going to be day in and day out. Yeah. So let's move to one of my favorite segments here, Nick. Um, and I'm very excited to see you came up here because I had, I have a lot of different names down, but I, I narrowed it down to a few, but this next segment is called and twins. And what we try to do is we look at Cooperstown today. We think of all of the, the plaques that are already enshrined there in Cooperstown, New York. And we go, you know, no one has a perfect twin. But whether it's the way they played the game, their career arc, just strictly numbers, or you're just like, hey, that guy reminds me of so-and-so. We try to pick who's the closest to being a twin. And, and for tonight, we're asking who is Dick Allen's Hall of Fame twin. So Nick, curious you came up with for this one. So I, you know, I did some research on this and, uh, you know, there aren't too, there aren't a lot of obvious choices. Uh, and I went with more numbers. And if you go on baseball reference, uh, you know, a guy like Larry Doby, uh, who is in the Hall of Fame, pretty similar numbers. He was a center fielder, second baseman, uh, played much longer than Dick Allen did. Uh, so I, I went with that as a possibility. Uh, but then you look at guys like Duke Snyder, who he's also uh, comped with, uh, who played 17 years, a couple years more than Dick Allen. I thought, uh, in my mind, uh, a Willie Stargell co mm. uh, comp was probably the closest in terms of the numbers. 20 years in the game for Stargell, left fielder, first baseman, uh, a Hall of Famer. But when you start looking at some of the numbers, uh, the the slugging and the OPS, Dick Allen's got uh, him beat in, in some of those power numbers. But WAR and you know average, uh, obviously Stargell with more games played, but that was probably the closest one that I came up with: Stargell and uh, Dick Allen. I, I like the Stargell one. I actually originally had that down as mine. Um, but the reason I went another direction is because Stargell does, I think, a big part of his story and why he was a first ballot guy is, you know, he won two World Series in Pittsburgh. He won that World Series MVP trophy. And that postseason success really, especially back then, I feel like, really put him on a different stage, you know, right? You're, you're winning the World Series, you're a World Series MVP. 
you're a household name. I went with someone, a very similar slugger in the same time period, but who did not have the postseason success like Dick Allen didn't have the postseason success. And that's Willie McCovey. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, this is a guy, and this is a big discussion point, which I want to get to in court, but the thing with Dick Allen, right? He, he only had, you know, just over 7,000 plate appearances. He didn't play that long, played from 1963 to 1977, Um, played in well less than 2000 games. So his counting stats, that's, that's what a lot of people against his candidacy will say, you know, it's, his counting stance are Art Hall of Fame, and, and I get that, right? Like, if we're looking at Willie McCovey, McCovey's a part of the 500 home run club. He had over 1,500 RBIs. He walked over 1,300 times, where Dick, because he had so much fewer plate appearances, 351 home runs, just over 1,100 RBIs, 900-ish walks. So Dick's going to lose against a lot of the sluggers you and I are talking about when it comes to the counting stats. But where Dick shines... And he almost surpasses, I'm not, this is not hyperbole, most sluggers in MLB history is when you get to his slash line. And and when we look at Stargell, where he beats him across the board, or Willie McCovey here, he crushes him, batting average way above him, on-base percentage higher than Willie McCovey, Uh, slugging percentage over Willie, OPS over Willie, OPS plus over Willie. So it gets into this whole conversation of, you know, how much do the counting stats matter versus how much does the at peak performance when he played, how much does that matter? And Dick Allen's going to beat most of the people we throw at him other than unless you start going to like the Lou Gehrig's and the Babe Roots, but that's, that's a different category of player. Um, he's going to beat most players, but then he's going to lose most of the counting stats. So that's where this counting stats versus slash line comes into play. And it's, it's very controversial with most. And I guess, Nick, I want to ask you just across the board, not even just for Dick Allen, but when you're looking at all-time greats, like, do you gravitate more to the players that, again, the 500 home run club, the 3,000 hit club, or do you look at players that just dominated their air? And, you know, the numbers matter. The numbers are always going to matter, but you look at more of the dominance and things like, you know, what their slash line is. Where do you fall along there? And I'm sure it's somewhere in the middle, but just in general, how do you look at players in their greatness? Well, I think if you look at, if you can, if you can get like a 10 year stretch uh, out of a player and you can see in, in his peak years, uh, well, compared to everybody else that was going on in the league and who else was around him, uh, what was he doing, you know, in that, in that peak performance or in that, or maybe a 10 year stretch, uh, you know, I, I, I want to pay attention to postseason, and I want to pay attention to, in this case, World Series. But, um, you know, that's there's a lot of factors that go into that, you know, of, of what kind of team you were you were on. And, and back then, when you were on a team, you were on a team, you know, and, and unless there were a lot of other factors and, you know, you were asking for a trade and, and all that kind of stuff, you, you, there weren't a lot of, uh, yeah you had to get lucky, so to speak, to have a, you know, supporting cast of, you know, pitching and hitting. So you could kind of do what you could do. Uh, and, and then you kind of have to look at what kind of pitching in this, in this situation. And you look at 1968, which was the year of the pitcher and, and Dick Allen even performed in, in that era. So uh, for me, you know, in terms of a player, but maybe with Dick Allen, it's like, well, what's that prime, you know, peak, you know, what was that chunk of years, 
um, where he was in his prime years. What did he do and how did that match up against uh, other players that were in the league with him? And Nick, I think that is, we did not share notes before tonight, but that's a perfect segue into court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. So court is where we talk and we've been doing this throughout, right? Pros, cons. Um, it's a mismatch, but there's a few items I want to cover here. And one of them is just what you were talking about. And it, it's a, definitely a pro for Dick Allen. You're talking about the peak, right? Uh, a 10 year, 11 year for a decade. You know, who are the best players in the league? And I think this is, I feel like this is a very easy concept for most fans and anyone, fans of baseball to understand of, you know, you grow up liking baseball, you start to understand it maybe at age eight years old. And then through the age eight, through graduating high school, you're probably more locked into baseball than ever because you got more free time. I know that was when I probably watched my most baseball between those ages, watching baseball tonight, every night, rest in peace. And, um, and you really get to know everything. And anyone that was like the guy for that long of a stretch, think about eight to 18 years old, that's a long time when you're that young. And if someone's dominating that whole time, that player to you is, is this next best thing. So I was looking at Dick Allen's like stretch, that like 10, 11 year stretch. And he played, I mean, we could go through some of the names, but he played during I don't want to say the golden age of baseball, but some of the top names of all time when it comes to hitters and pitchers were during the era of, you know, the 60s and, and, the, and the 70s. And if I look at right after his rookie year, let's say 1964 to his last year on the White Sox, because after that, that was like his last, I think, great year. So 1964 to 1974. That OPS plus number you brought up, um, he was first across all of baseball, not just in the AL or the NL across all of baseball in OPS plus across that 11 year period. We're not talking about a two year period, a five year stretch, an 11 year period. And if you look at the names afterward, I mean, we are talking about household first ballot guys. Willie McCovey is right after him. Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron's right after him. Frank Robinson, Willie Stargell, Roberto Clemente, Harmon Killebrew, Willie Mays, Frank Howard, call those are the names after him. And that's over an 11 year stretch. And then again, war fans, cause I know people love war and I know his career war is not maybe it's good. It's like 58. It's not maybe mm -hmm. a typical hall of famer, but it's not bad. If you look at offensive war over that stretch, he's first Hank Aaron's second Frank Robinson's third call your fourth Joe Morgan is fifth. So offensive war, OPS plus, that doesn't mean everything. Those are just some stats, but those two offensive stats, he's not second, he's not top five, he's first among those all-time names. And I really think that, I think that means something. I mean, how do you feel about that? It has to. I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, he was 22. So that was from years 22 to 32, 64 to 74, uh, 299 batting average, 319 home runs, 165 OPS plus, uh, over 3000 total bases and that 940 OPS uh, list of players that have accomplished it in the expansion era. Frank Thomas, Albert Pujols, 
Dick Allen. I mean, it's a small company uh, and you broke, break up the names that were behind him on that list when he was playing. I mean, that goes to what I was saying previously of like, who were you playing with? Who were you playing against? And how long did you do it for? I guess, in terms of your prime stretch. And, and that is impressive. That is an impressive stretch uh, from when he played against who he played. Uh, those are powerful numbers. They, they really are. And again, the one, if you were to go into the, um, you know, a room full of voters, that 16 person committee, next time it comes around, if I was the lead speaker for Dick Allen, I think a lot, of, I would, and I think a lot of people would point to those peaks, but the, the statistic of OPS plus, which I think is becoming more and more common now um, around even people that just casually watch baseball, because the reason I say this is because the other day while I was watching the Cubs game and uh, sorry, Sox fans, I am a Cubs fan. We're not good. So it's fine. Um, they were showing uh, home runs, RBIs, batting average, and they were showing OPS plus on the box underneath the batter. And I was like, wow, OPS plus is coming up in the world because people are starting to finally talk about this. And, and this is his most impressive statistic because all time in MLB history. So again, this is not the 10 year stretch anymore. This is 150 year or 140 plus years of baseball history. He is 24th, 24th all time in OPS plus. And, and if you look at the names that come right after him, I mean, this is this would be a mic drop. So it's Dick Allen at 156. That's lifetime. Frank Thomas also 156. And then listen to this murderous row after him. All having 155. So just one behind him, but still behind. Hank Aaron, Joe DiMaggio, Willie Mays, Mel Ott, and then at 154, Manny Ramirez, Frank Robinson. I I it's just these are not really good players. These are not just Hall of Famers. These are the all-time greats. I mean, I look at it, Henry Aaron's a top 10 player of all time, probably top five. Willie Mays, a top five player of all time. Frank Robinson's in that top 10 to 15. I mean, these are the best, the best, and he's above them. But the OPS plus thing, I mean, Nick, that's something I've been, I, I will say I maybe learned what it was five, six, seven years ago. I've warmed up to it much more over the years as I talk to more baseball writers, Hall of Fame voters, where I will say, and, and not to do an age thing here, the younger voters, a lot more likely to talk to me about it than the older voters. That's fair. I get it. What's your stance in OPS plus? How, how much importance should we put, put behind that? Because if that was just a mainstream stat, like home runs or, or something that everyone grew up on, I think he'd already be in the hall of fame already. It just, it wasn't mainstream when he was on the ballot. It definitely was not known about now. It's a little more known about what's your stance in OPS plus how important is it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very important. I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, normalizing the numbers and, and taking, you know, different external factors in, into play, but you, you said it correctly. I mean, during the early years when he was on the ballot, like 83 to 97, nobody really heard of OPS plus uh, that wasn't uh, that wasn't in the, the language uh, of voters. That, that was not something that was factored or looked at or talked about or, or flashed up on a screen. I mean, it has changed so much, uh, but I think it's a very important metric 
uh, just to put things in perspective uh, of, you know, who you were playing against, where you were playing and when you were playing. And you brought this up earlier and I was like, Nick, let's wait because I have a moment for this. This is when I wanted to bring it up. You brought up the spacious ballparks he played in. I think you were strictly talking about Comiskey, but Connie Mack Stadium in Philly too had some pretty unreal dimensions. So the stadium he played in the beginning of his career in, in you know, Philadelphia, deep, deep, okay, wait, center field was 447. 447 feet was center field. Deep left center was 420. Deep right center was 405. And that's where he was playing. In 1966 on the Phillies in this stadium, he hit 40 home runs. Second on the team had 22 home runs. Third on the team had 11. Okay. So again, you look at his numbers. Yes, he hit 40 home runs in 1966. But I promise you, when your second guy has 22 home runs and the guy in third has 11, 40 home runs means a lot more than 40 home runs means today and definitely way more than 40 home runs meant in 1998 and 2004. 40 home runs back then is like 55 home runs today. And then you look at Comiskey when he went to Sox, he led the league in home runs twice. Um, You know, he hit hit two inside the parks uh, in that 72 season, but also hit him out of Comiskey. Center field in Comiskey was 420. The power alleys, 382. The foul lines, 363. That was definitely not it, too. And I looked at that 72 season. Again, I believe Allen had 37 home runs that year. Nick, how much do you think the guy in second had on that 72 squad? Oh, I'm going through some names in my head. Um, it's Carlos I, I was, May. Carlos May yeah, was second. Carlos May, sure. Um, the, the only player in history, I believe, to have his birth date on the back of his jersey, by the way. Um, <laughs> I would say he was sitting, uh, uh, let's put him at 22. 12. 12. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So the second leading oh. home run hitter had 12. Third was the catcher, Ed Herman, with 10. Those were the only two guys on the squad besides Allen who had double digit home runs. So again, everyone, we're, we're, we're talk about in a second about the home run total. It's 351. It's not hall of fame for a slugger. I get, I get it. I do understand it. And I get it. And again, some of the players from the past that have the home run totals, they had far center fielders, especially back, you know, in the sixties, fifties, forties, before that, the, the stadiums were larger. We all know that. But what I'm trying to put here is that Dick Allen was doing one thing and everyone else in the squad was doing a completely different thing, but they were playing the same game at the same time. And I'm I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that just shows don't get hung up on the 351 as much because the power was there. The slugging percentage shows it. The OPS plus definitely shows it. He was one of the best power hitters of the air. Uh, and the advanced metrics show it. And again, if you really, you know, go granular here and look at the team, when your second guy is 12, something's going on with the stadium. So for you to hit 37 is quite the feat. And then also, I think, Nick, the uh, the inside the park home runs make a little more sense, right? When we talk about the old dimensions of Comiskey. Yeah. And I mean, even look at probably Tiger Stadium. I mean, they were in uh, the sure. same uh, realm. I mean, they, they were just large. They were absolutely large. And uh yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, uh, putting the narrative. I mean, what he was doing and, and light years ahead, I mean, above everybody else that he was playing against. Again, they were playing the same game, but it was like 
what then how is why is he doing it so so better you know i mean he he just uh he was like a man amongst boys yes so there's two more things i want to get to the final verdict one i think could help maybe hurt his case i don't know it's how you look at it i think it helps and one is i think a big reason why and people were I tweeted about this earlier, Nick. I think I told you before the show, and people were already listing a bunch of reasons why they don't think he's in. So I want to talk about that reason because a lot of the, a lot of the listeners seem to be pointing to that. I want to get your take on it. But the first thing is around. I brought up when I was talking about Willie McCovey, right? You know, Dick Allen's slash line, it's it's impeccable. It's great, but the counting numbers. A lot of people are like, that's why he's not in. He doesn't have the counting numbers, and a big reason why is again his career just wasn't that long. He came in at twenty one. He left at 35, but really his last great season was 74 with the White Sox. After that, career really faded out. So he really had that big 11-year stretch for the most part. Really good rookie season, that 11-year stretch, and then it was kind of out. So he had 7,315 plate appearances. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at other sluggers who are in the Hall of Fame and also had, you know, under 7,500 plate appearances. Cause I wanted to see where were their counting stats, right? That didn't prevent them from being in the hall. What, what were their counting stats? And there's some really good names here. And I'm just curious to see kind of what, what you think of this. So I will mention here, most of these guys, they had shorter careers and smaller plate appearances because they were fighting in World War II, which again is just badass, but that's a whole nother thing. So that's badass. But we got Hank Greenberg here, Johnny Mize, Ralph Kiner, Hack Wilson, my Chicago Cub, Chuck Klein, and Dick Allen. And all these guys have under, again, 7,500 uh, plate appearances. So very short careers. None of them played over 2,000 games. And I was looking at their counting stats because, again, this is what's held against Dick. And if I go to, like, hits, there's six guys here. Dick Allen is third in hits with 1,848. Hank Greenberg, Hack Wilson, Ralph Kiner all had fewer kits. Ralph Kiner only had 1,451 hits. If I look at doubles, another thing I'm like, man, Dick Allen only had 320 doubles. Hack Wilson, Ralph Kiner both had fewer. If I look at triples, Dick Allen was second most in triples. Four guys are underneath him. If I look at home runs, again, I keep saying, oh, he didn't hit enough home runs. He's third on this list. Greenberg. Chuck Klein, Hack Wilson, all beneath him. RBIs, Dick is fourth. Stolen bases, Dick wipes the floor with them. He's in first. If I go to walks, Dick's in second. And if I go to OPS plus, which again is his calling card, he's not first, but he's behind Hank Greenberg, who's at 159. He's behind Johnny Mize, who's at 158. Then it's him. And then beneath him is Kiner, Hack Wilson, Klein. What I will say, if you go to slash line, he is actually, um, you know, he's fifth out of six in batting average. And when it gets to on-base percentage, slugging, and OPS, he's actually at the bottom of all of those. However, when I say that, he's slightly at the bottom. Like, for instance, slugging percentage, he's at the bottom at 534. But Ralph Kiner's in third with 548, right? If I talk about OPS, Yes, he is in last with 912, but Johnny Mize is second with 959. So he's in the realm on all the slash lines. 
counting stats, which is everything holds against him, he's near the top here for most of these guys. And again, all these guys are in the Hall of Fame. Dick Allen's not. So, Nick, my question to you is, do you think this helps Dick Allen's case? Do you think it hurts it? Or do you think it's just, it's a nice to have, but doesn't really tell me much? Well, yeah, the years is definitely going to cause a lot of that uh, with your counting stats, uh, unfortunately. But still, 15 years, uh, you know, injured for uh, a few of those. I mean, four seasons under 100 games. Um, I, I still think from what you, you know, what you talked about, I still look favorably for Dick Allen and it's like, well, he accomplished so much uh, in a relatively short amount of time compared to uh, maybe some of the, you know, the longer careers that will go into the hall of fame. And when you look again at when did you play, what era did you play? Who did you play against? And and you take some of those intangibles uh, into thought. I I think that helps better prepare you uh, to make a well-rounded a vote, uh, you know, on a particular player. Yes, I, I agree with that completely. I think it's helpful to see the context of the people that like, you know, Dick Allen didn't have many play appearances, but when they did, they were elite of the elite. And again, we've gone over the slash line now for a while. So I think everyone gets it again. One more time for my war fans out of those six guys, Nick, where do you think Dick Allen ranks among war among those guys? Mm, I, you know, I, I put him, I want to say slightly above middle of the pack. So he's towards the top. He's second. There you go. Johnny Mize. I'm going to round up. So everyone at home with their calculator, chill out. Johnny Mize, 71 war, which is really impressive in just 1,884 games, but 70.6 war. Dick Allen, second, 58.7. Hank Greenberg, third, 55.4. Ralph Kiner, fourth, 48. Chuck Klein, 46.7. He's fifth. And Hack Wilson all the way down there at 38.7. So the whole war argument, again, if we're talking about, like, he's up there, too. And, again, I take that with a grain of salt. To be honest, his defense, he's the worst by far on defense. So if he would have been a little more subpar in defense, he'd be even higher up there. But overall war, he's second among that group. And, again, everyone at home, those are all Hall of Famers. Nick, the last thing I want to get to here before we get to final verdict is the something that everyone on Twitter was blowing me up about. A lot of people were saying this. They said, you know, Dick Allen's not in because people had a problem with his character. The writers hated him. People were unfair to him. I mean, I know Philly fans booed him for a lot of different reasons. What is your take on that? Is that 100% true? Tell, Tell me a little more about, I guess, Dick Allen's public perception back in the 60s and 70s, as well as what were the voters looking at when they were looking at his career and just, I guess, his overall personality, because it seemed like he did rub the people that are in charge of this institution the wrong way back then. I mean, he was combative, uh, you know, and uh, there was reasons for that dealing with racism uh, in Philadelphia. I mean, he's wearing a helmet because things were thrown at him batteries and you know whatever fans could get a hold of they were throwing them at him on the field and uh you know he he just you know he was a different type of player back then you know he i think rubbed a lot of people the wrong way you know i pulled this quote from from july of 1967 from dick allen and he said i don't want to be a superstar i hate anybody with a hammer over my head i don't think i could handle 
an eight to five job. I know my own responsibilities. I got to do things as I see fit. I know lots of time when I'm late for anything, it costs me. I know it costs me, but I'd rather not give reasons. And he was fined multiple times for not showing up, showing up late. And uh, I think he had a very difficult relationship uh, with the media and the voters, uh, essentially, you know, early on. So uh, absolutely, I, th I think that is right on with all the responses that you got on social media. I think that's a huge component. Do you think that should matter, Nick? I do not think it should matter. Uh, I don't. Um, you know, he, not everybody is going to be media friendly. And that was a problem back then. There absolutely was a problem. Things were so much different. You know, you'd hear stories of, you know, newspaper uh, journalists going out to, you know, for cocktails and for dinner with athletes and with managers. It, it was such a different, you know, the accessibility that you had is is great now, but it was a different a different level way back when. And I think they just expected, well, you know, you should you should be more available to us. You know, we're writing the stories here and we're going to write the narrative that we want to see fit. And I don't think Dick Allen cared. And I think that caught them off guard. I mean, he was he was cut uh, from a different cloth. And uh, and I think he I think that was ultimately what you know, I think he probably wanted to quit the game when he was in Philadelphia. I, I think he had had enough. And uh, coming to Chicago really saved him in a lot of respects, the embrace that he got. And of course that, you know, he was a superstar, um, you know, it's, uh, but again, to the original question, no, I, I absolutely don't think that should, uh, you know, that should weigh him down. Yeah. And, and last question before final verdict, just if, if Dick Allen were to come up in today's major leagues, um, I, is there anyone today that remind like reminds you of at least how you've heard of him playing seen him play the stats is there anyone today that kind of you're like that's kind of like a dick allen type player i struggle with this i really couldn't come up with anyone that is that is a really good uh question you know i because you could think of different you can think of like the attitude the uh, i'm going to be my own person you know i'm going to do things a, a different way and i don't care what anybody else thinks uh, and then, of course, the the, the tape measure shots and, and the raw power, uh, you got to look at some of that. Uh, yeah, it, I'd have to really sit on that. No, no, nobody pops off sure. the page. And maybe that's also a telling sign is because Dick Allen was such an original. Yeah. And, and again, I can't really think of anyone. The only thing I'd say is I think I think his game would be appreciated a bit more because he was a guy back then who had a high on base percentage. He was a guy that again, had a really good OPS plus he walked, he hit for power. It's, it's kind of what everyone looks at today. Right. And back then they weren't yet. He was almost a little ahead of his time. And I always think, you know, if he had this career, but he retired in 2017, I think the belt would have went much different for him. I, I, I just, the way we look at baseball today, I think he was just a little before his time in terms of the production he was putting up. I think it'd be a little different story if he would come on the ballot today. But Nick, I want to get to final verdict here. So how this works is I'm going to ask you two questions. You're going to answer them. Then I'm going to answer them. And I'm going to get you out of here. So the two questions are, one, if you had a vote, if you were in that committee, would you vote Dick Allen into the Baseball Hall of Fame into Cooperstown? And the second one, second question is, do you think Dick Allen will get into the Hall of Fame in the next 50 years? 
both of those questions, uh, you know, I would answer yes to. He absolutely should be voted in the Hall of Fame. I would vote him uh, into the Hall of Fame. And I think when you look down the road, decades later, um, you know, I know they're going to, you know, these committees are, are going to be, you know, compartmentalized and they're going to be changed and shifted and he's going to be grouped with others. But because of some of the metrics that we talked about and a greater appreciation for what they are uh, this day and age with the new voters, uh, younger voters, I would imagine, uh, I believe he will get in uh, absolutely in the next 50 years. Do you think he will get in on this next ballot coming up in a few years? I don't. I, I think it's still going to be a little bit of a journey for him, but the, there's movement. There, there's absolute movement. I think he's gotten, he's closer than he probably ever, ever has before. Uh, and I think social media has helped that. You know, there are all different kinds of, you know, whether it's a fan page on, on Facebook or, you know, I think there's still, you know, Dick Allen pages on Twitter and, you know, his uh, stuff lives on YouTube and, you know, this Chili Dog MVP book. And, you know, I think there might even be, you know, a, a kind of a 30 for 30 type of thing in the works potentially just to bring his story more to mainstream uh, and catch people up for what they've missed uh, years ago. Yeah. So I would vote him in the Hall of Fame. And, I, and I'll tell you, uh, Nick, I didn't always feel that way. Um, what changed my mind, honestly, is what I made sure we spent time on today is talking about those other players with fewer plate appearances. Um, when I really lined him up against these guys who I've never questioned their Hall of Fame status, the, the Ralph Kiners of the world, the, the Hank Greenbergs, the Johnny Mises, when I saw how he ranked among them on the slash line, which again, he was not really near the top on most of those, but he was in the pact. I mean, he's, he's there. And then I saw how his counting stats kind of outdid most of these guys. I really didn't see how I couldn't vote him in. Um, so, so that's what really sold it on me. And then again, I think the OPS plus is the icing on the cake. And does they have that MVP trophy, which again, I know this is not the NBA where every single past MVP is in the hall of fame. It's a lot different here. We got people like Dale Murphy, who has two MVPs now in the Hall of Fame. Um, that happens. But that MVP season is like that cherry on the top. I believe he belongs in. Do I think he'll get in? I do. I mean, let's be honest. He came within one vote two different times. My fear, though, as you mentioned, it might take a little bit, is how now how the Veterans Committee is, how it's everyone pre-1980. It's a lot of players. And I haven't yet done the homework of looking of who's his competition going to be. And I guess the good part is that last class that had the Gil Hodges, me Minoso, that got a lot of the guys from his time period off the back burner. You know, that that's good. But I have no idea who's in all of the classes before that. I have to take a look. So I think he gets in one day, I would say next 20 years. And I think that OPS plus number is going to be his again. It's going to guide him there because, as I said, the other day I saw on TV, it's becoming more and more mainstream. And if you really feel strongly about that statistic, which many people today do, they I had a guy argue with me the other day that, you know, Joey Votto is one of the best hitters of all time because of how high is, you know, OPS pluses. It's like, I think it's like higher than like Puos or something at this point. And I'm like, that's not true. It's a factor, but it's not true. But what I'm saying is it's becoming more and more relevant. And that couldn't be a better story for Dick Allen. So 
It's unfortunate he passed away before he could see it. As I said before, it's my least favorite thing about the Hall of Fame. It seems to happen way too often. But hopefully his family and friends one day can be there for him. And Chuck, it'll be interesting. Or Nick, Chuck. Nick, it'll be interesting to see, right, what hat he wears. Because I think it's going to be a Phillies. But the White Sox thing, the more we talk about it, the more I'm kind of making a case for it. I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. You know, he, I, I believe the Phillies have retired his number. And, uh, but from what, everything he, he has talked about and he has said about his experience with Chicago, uh, he wanted to go in, I think, as, with, as a White Sox. I, I have one, one quote, speaking of that 72 sure. season, that I just, I fell in love with this quote. It's from Goose Gossage, who saw a lot of baseball in his, I think, 20 plus years. He's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he played with Dick Allen on that 1972 team. And this is what he said about Dick Allen. I've been around the game a long time, and he's the greatest player I've ever seen play in my life. He had the most amazing season, 1972, I've ever seen. He's the smartest baseball man I've ever been around in my life. He taught me how to pitch from a hitter's perspective and taught me how to play the game right. There's no telling the numbers this guy could have put up if all he worried about was stats. The guy belongs in the Hall of Fame. And, and, and Nick, that could easily be just his plaque. They could almost just, you know, <laughs> yeah. change a few words there and throw on the plaque. But that's a great quote to end it. So that kind of wraps up the Dick Allen pod. Before we get you out of here, Nick, please go away and plug anything you're, you're working on or what you do day to day here. Uh, it's all White Sox, uh, which is kind of unfortunate right now. That is uh, where we are. Um, I've got uh, a daily Chicago White Sox podcast, Locked on White Sox. You can find it absolutely everywhere. There's a YouTube channel as well. And then I do a weekly uh, Chicago White Sox podcast. It's uh, in our fifth season. It's called Good Guys Talk Back. It's a playoff of Good Guys Wear Black. Uh, which was their early 90s theme uh, when they went to the new ballpark. Uh, that's uh, every week, uh, audio and YouTube everywhere. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Nick underscore GGTB. Awesome. Go check out those podcasts, especially if you're a White Sox fan. Follow Nick on Twitter. Nick, appreciate the time. Um, we'll see, you know, in a couple of years what happens here, but this will be a name that probably comes up every time that committee comes up. And we'll just keep throwing this podcast out here because it's evergreen. And maybe one day when he gets in, we bring you on for a full recap and we talk about, you know, he finally got in, what got him over the edge, all that good stuff. But Nick, appreciate you taking the time. Good luck with the rest of your season. As a Cubs fan, we're both in kind of purgatory here. So we're, we're just get through the summer. Hey, it's baseball season. Um, it's still a good time to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. Really appreciated the conversation. And yeah, hopefully uh, we talk again. And it is because of uh, uh, Dick Allen getting into the Hall of Fame. All right. Take care. All right. I want to thank Nick again for coming on the podcast to talk about Dick Allen. That was a lot of fun. And again, a very, when it comes to Hall of Fame talk, right? Dick Allen's always there. So that was that was needed for our show, and, and I'm glad I was able to do it for you all. But that is all we have for today. Um, if you don't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Pot of Fame. Follow us on Substack. Easiest way to find that, just Google Pot of Fame. You're going to find our Substack. It's called Past, Present, Future. If you've done all that, you've done your homework. Fourth of July is tomorrow. Hopefully, you are off today. Enjoy your 4th of July week. Hopefully it's a slow week. Be safe out there with the fireworks. 
Enjoy a lot of barbecue. And we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. And again, have a great 4th of July. And the world